Hauser, Hawk Blogger, and it's time for another Hawk Blogger podcast. It's it's been a while. I uh, hope hope everyone's enjoying the roll into the preseason. I certainly have. Uh, training camp's been fantastic. The Seahawks look exciting. They look renewed, rejuvenated. There's faces that that are new to the team. There are faces that are recovering from injury. There are coaches that are getting their first opportunity to step into the forefront. Lots of storylines to follow. Lots of interesting things going on with this team. And we're talking about a two-time you know, Super Bowl team. Back-to-back years, they've gone to the Super Bowl. And in a lot of ways, they already look better than they did at this time last year. Talk more about that as we go on, but uh, as always, uh, great to have you guys. Uh, please check me out on Twitter at HawkBlogger, on Facebook slash HawkBlogger, and then uh, Periscope, something I've been playing with, and you'll see those. I basically have started posting a lot of those to my YouTube channel, which is woefully uh, neglected, but it now has some content, and feel free to, to watch the awkward portrait videos of me uh, talking on Periscope. So uh, tons of me talking. Hopefully it's valuable. If not, then I don't know why you're listening, but but that's okay. Uh, I'm going to keep talking because I know there's folks that appreciate it and, and I enjoy uh, meeting all you folks. So let's get right down to it. I, I've been to most of the training camp practices so far. I've, uh, I've not gone the past two days. Today, uh, it's probably good to date these things. Today is August 11th, Tuesday, uh, and the last training camp practice I went to was the scrimmage on Saturday. Tomorrow, I'll be there again, and I'll, I'll kind of check things out. But, you know, I had a lot of questions going into camp. We let in with, you know, a podcast every day, the, the week of, detailing every single position group, and... You know, the biggest news coming in, you know, coming into camp was essentially Russell Wilson getting signed and then Bobby Wagner getting signed. It's really taken so much of the air out of that pressure balloon that had been building. It's almost hard to reacclimate and reacquaint yourself with what that feeling was like. It's now back to kind of the way it felt before, like all that stuff's taken care of. Uh, they have released Tony McDaniel. Tony McDaniel. We'll talk about that a little bit. And you look at it, and one of the things that my immediate reaction, other than, than uh, I, I would say it's not my immediate reaction, that's, that's, that wouldn't be fair. I think it's, it's a, a reaction that kind of has come as, as I've thought about this a little bit more, is they still have their franchise tag. It'll be interesting to see if this team decides to apply that to anyone. They still have very valuable to them free agents that are going to be hitting the market next year. They have a J.R. Sweezy. They have a Russell Okung. They have a Bruce Irvin. I don't think you're going to see them franchise a Bruce Irvin. I don't think, I don't think you'll see them franchise Russell Okung, but I wonder. Uh, 
and, and I think as ideas go, franchising a guy like Russell Okung takes him into his late 20s gives them another year to really develop a young left tackle. It's not out of the realm of possibilities. Uh, there's ways that that could potentially work uh, with the salary cap. So in any event, um, really interesting kind of opening to camp in that regard. And then, you know, as I watched the first three days of camp, you know, every snap and watched more snaps when I got back from from business trip, it was Thursday, a few things kind of became clear. I think uh, we, our biggest question going in was, uh, from a competition standpoint, was really around the offensive line, specifically about center. And to some extent, left guard. Um, and that's kind of emerged as more of a, a competition in recent days. So let's talk about that for a second. We've got... Um, uh, the odds-on favorite for center going in was Lemuel Jean-Pierre. And I think that largely is because Lem's a guy that has been with the team for many years, understands the offense, understands the calls, and is not going to make mental mistakes. He's not going to be the guy that you know forces Russell to know all the calls, and he's not going to be a guy that gets the team into the wrong set, um, the wrong the wrong blocking scheme, uh, the wrong choice based off of of the scheme that the defense is setting up in. What Lem is not is a superior physical specimen. I mean, he's very strong. He's always been strong. He is just a replacement-level player, I think, is, is really what it comes down to for people that follow baseball. He is a guy that can man that position and is not going to embarrass you. But there's a reason that he was a free agent all of last year, even after the Seahawks cut him, and they were able to re-sign him. So he is not going to grow and, and become a lot better. He is likely the player he is always going to be. And he is a safe choice. He is, he is a fallback um, should they need it. But my observation in watching Tom Cable and Pete Carroll in the front office is, in general, when, when they have a choice like this to make, even a tie will always go to the younger player. And if it's close to a tie, it usually goes to the younger player. And in this case, the, no, the younger player is Drew Nowak. And I've been calling him Nowak, which is incorrect got confirmation from him and the Seahawks that it is no walk like Ewok. And Drew's a guy who is young, is physical, played the defensive line. He's another convert in that way. Very athletic, very strong, and has been with the team since late last year and was learning the position, learning center. But what gives me a little pause with Nowak is they've acknowledged this is a guy that is not as polished as Lem is in terms of line calls and knowing the protection schemes. And that's an issue. You know, it, it came up last year when Patrick Lewis was in there and even Lem to some extent, but definitely Patrick Lewis. You had Russell Wilson who had to take on making the checks at the line um, for protection. 
And taking on that extra bit of work, one, took away from his overall gameplay. That was part of when he had a downturn in his his uh, his overall performance. And he mentioned it. You know, he mentioned that he was working on that stuff. And he also specifically mentioned when Max Unger came back, how much of a load that took off of his shoulders and how it let him play a little bit more freely. And so it's a hidden thing that no fan is generally going to notice. But having a center who is truly in command of what the line has to do, who recognizes defenses and, and can understand the the indications that the defense gives that helps an offense understand how to react or how to prepare for it having a center like that is a massive advantage and you know when when they traded Max Unger away I think they knew very well Tom Cable especially knew very well how much of a loss that was I think he's put on a very brave face and I think the the number one rule for the Seahawks is protect the team. And so you're not going to hear Tom Cable complain about the decision to train to trade away Max Unger. But I can almost 100% promise you he was not happy about that trade. And yes, he said that Max was injured, not on the field. Those are the reasons he likely got moved. I think salary cap was another, but um, I don't think that Tom Cable would have chosen to have this happen if, if he had had an opportunity to be part of that decision. So that said, uh, you now have that decision been made and you've got these two centers, one of which is really a rookie when it comes to playing center. And even a guy like J.R. Sweezy, who was converted and played guard, he started as a rookie and was productive but he was better his second year and still better his third year. And, you know, now talks about how much more confident he is and what he's supposed to do and how to read the defense. This is his fourth year. So to expect Nowak to come in and start at center and to be seasoned and not make a lot of mistakes, it's pretty damn naive. Like that won't happen, folks. If he gets the job, which I think he is very likely to do, then you're going to get a guy that probably has some physical talent but you're going to get a guy that makes some mistakes and costs the team some drives because there's a fumble or there's a, um, a missed block, a missed assignment um, due to the wrong read, the wrong line call, and a play gets blown up. You know, it only takes one or two negative plays to destroy a drive. So it is still a real area of concern. I mean, as, as bullish as I am on this team, and we'll talk about all the reasons I'm so bullish on this team, it's a real issue. It is It is a weakness. It is something that for it to work out, he's going to really have to overachieve. And we have seen some rookie centers really do great uh, and really just emerge into the scene, the, the guy down in, in Dallas for sure. But it is not typical. It is not typical. The guy in um, Green Bay also uh, has done well. So I think that that one for me is not quite done, but it's pretty dang close. Uh, one, you know, Noak is sorry, no walk. <laughs> it's gonna take me a little while. He he is moved into the number one spot. Lem is still rotating with him. I think they're thinking through things, but it's so close. 
that it gets back to the the rule I said before. If it's close, they're going to go with the younger player. I'm pretty sure. The interesting thing there to pay attention to is if they do go with Nowak, then I think there's a reasonable chance that Lem won't even make the squad. I could see a situation where they keep other guys that can play guard uh, that are younger, that they potentially look at um, a guy like Sicoli who comes on and, and works as a backup center and gets some, some time there if they really like him, and know that they can probably get Lem if they want to later. That's, that's one way this could go down. Um, quick aside on Sicoli, I don't honestly see what other people see so far. I mean, I think I understand his spark score is amazing and he's this athletic freak. Certainly, you know, if he's got spark scores that match what Jimmy Graham has, or sorry, not Jimmy Graham, JJ Watt, it doesn't look like that watching him out there. Uh, he does not look like a specimen in that way or, or jump off the field in, in any specific way. But um, from a blocking perspective, he also looks pretty raw. Uh, so I'm not as sold on Sicoli. I trust Tom Cable to be able to pick out prospects that he can develop. And so if he keeps them, I would understand why. But I'm more interested. The guy like Kona Schwanke is is actually been more interesting to me. He's a rookie. He's been playing. He played guard in college. He's been playing guard and tackle for the Seahawks out at right tackle. And I think he's shown some promise. He's very athletic. He's six foot four. He's in the two ninety range, two eighty five, something like that. So, you know, unless the Coley just looks significantly better, I wouldn't be surprised if a guy like Schwanke ends up making it over Sicoli. which let's talk about guard in general. Let's, let's look at that. And the starting left guard position has been assumed to be Alvin Bailey. And Alvin's a guy who has always been at his best pass protecting as a tackle. That's where he has just been off the charts, impressive from really snap one and training camp his, his rookie year. He was known as a run blocker in college, but that is not how he's been known for the Seahawks. I don't know if that's a scheme thing. Like there was a lot of power runs that he ran in college and now they're doing zone and he's not quite that athletic. So maybe he can't reach people as well. Maybe he can't get to the second level as well. Um, who knows what that reason is. Maybe he's got that. There's something that is causing Tom Cable and the team to cycle in pretty much everybody to left guard to see if anyone can push Bailey at that position and it could be preparation, it could be um, fitness level that, you know, maybe he's, he's starting to gain some weight back. Who knows? But right now, you know, Alvin Bailey's the guy I would expect to be there. If not, you know, the other players that have gotten an opportunity there, we've seen Sicoli. I don't think there's any chance he's a starting left guard. I'd be really shocked. Uh, then you've got a guy like uh, Mark Glowinski, and then recently today you've had, spacing on his name, Kevon Milton, Kevon Milton. So between those guys, I've been a fan of Glowinski. Uh, I've watched him in practice. I can't say he's stood out. He's been okay. Uh, he definitely has, he's been, he's played guard in college. He knows the position. He is, you know, a talented guy. He's a guy they drafted and saw something in. He's a guy that probably will get some chances. 
Milton is a guy who's a big brawler, you know, 324 pounds. He's a big boy, but I'm not, I need to see a little bit more of him. So when I go to practice tomorrow, I'll take another look. But, you know, I've seen a couple things that were good from him, but in general, nothing that's been worth elevating to a top spot. I do think it's worth mentioning that the guy they brought in to play left guard, backup left guard, is Terry Poole. He was drafted this essentially this, you know, one pick before Mark Lewinsky. And Poole is clearly not in the mix for starting at left guard. I think there's a chance he may not make the team the way things are going. So the team's kind of looking through, trying to create competition, trying to find the right solution at that at that position. And I think one of the most damning statements I've heard around Alvin Bailey right now, I think was from Tom Cable today, and it was something along the lines of you know, Alvin Bailey is currently leading that competition, but in a way that we'd probably be rotating him out within the first quarter of the game to get other guys some snaps, which is not a glowing endorsement by any stretch. So uh, that position is unsettled. That's the best way to put it. And you've really got two now open positions on that line. And this is a running team, folks. So we t- love to say that Marshawn's back. Great. Russell's back. Great. They've got great new targets. That's all good. I'm telling you, if Russell has no time to throw, they're not going to do well. If, if there are no lanes for Marshawn to run in or there's no push, they're not going to do well. And I really hope in most cases that this doesn't become, I hope in all cases, it doesn't become an issue. Part of me would love for people just to really have it sink in, and I don't know if it would, to see how much less effective Russell Wilson would be, how much less effective Marshawn Lynch would be behind a bad offensive line because this offensive line gets so thrown under the bus all the time. Whenever Russell's sacked, it's because of them. Whenever Beast Mode can't get a a push or yard, it's because of them. And every yard Marshawn's ever got is only because of him, is the, you know what the average fan would tell you. That's all horseshit, folks. It really is. You know, the offensive line, this is one of the more talented. You don't lead the league in rushing multiple years by having a bad offensive line. You don't. I don't care if Russell is getting yards on scrambles or read option. I don't care if Marshawn Lynch breaks more tackles than any other running back in the league. They're all absolutely part of this. But I have seen terrible offensive lines, and I've seen good quarterbacks and good running backs behind terrible offensive lines. They can't overcome it. Terrible offensive lines ruin entire offenses. They cease to be able to to operate at all. So I hope we don't see that because that would be really bad. It It would really suck. But I just bring that up as a reiteration of how important it is that this gets settled and that the Seahawks are able to put people in there that are reliable, trustworthy, um, worthwhile, and that those players can grow together. And that I think because it's so important that offensive linemen learn to work together and adjust together, the sooner they can make this call, the better. You know, know, Tom Cable, other people have said they can let it go as long as possible. Sure, they could. I don't think that's the best thing for the team. I don't think that's a good sign for the team for that to happen. Other battles going on. I think wide receivers one that's worth worth a mention. And um, 
you know, I look at that roster and that position is so competitive that you've got a guy in Douglas McNeil who is playing really well as a receiver who's now converted to cornerback and is even listed as a as a cornerback on the uh, the Seahawks roster now. But here's what I know. Doug Baldwin, in. Tyler Lockett, in. Jermaine Curse, in. That's three that are locks. Chris Matthews, in. I think that he's close to a lock, but we'll see. He has not had a great camp, folks. Uh, he's, he's not gotten a lot of opportunity, and the opportunities he's got, I've seen a few drops. You know, I haven't seen the dominating going up over cornerback plays that we saw in the Super Bowl. Um, I've seen him try a few times, but not come down with the ball. Drops the ball when he hits the ground or something to that effect. So he has not been great as a receiver so far in camp. And then you've got a guy, then it gets really interesting. Uh, Kevin Norwood is someone that they have under club control for the next three years. I think that he's a very promising player. He's six foot two. He's a strong route runner. He's got fantastic hands and is a good special teams player. You've got Ricardo Lockett, who's also six foot two, very fast, but he's 29 years old. He is, you know, close knit with the team and with the other receivers and, and, you know, Russell knows him, but he's just an okay receiver. He's never going to be more than what he is. He is a great special teams player but I just don't know if that's enough. Um, if, if the Seahawks go with five wide receivers, which they've been known to do, that's been essentially their average, then let's count that again. Doug, one. Jermaine, two. Tyler Lockett, three. Chris Matthews is probably four. And then you got a decision to make. And I think between Lockett and Norwood, Ricardo Lockett and Norwood, I lean a little towards Norwood. Um, it'll really depend on if they, how they make decisions on the other part of the roster for special teams. But there's a lot of options there for, for filling in Ricardo's role on special teams. Maybe not as well as he does, but if it means you get to keep a receiver with more upside that is younger and can grow with the team, I think you got to think about that. Jermaine Curse is gone next year. This is his last year. You need to be developing young wide receivers. Tyler Lockett's going to be great. I, I'm confident of that. But he is a specific type. He's more in the slot role. I think he can play outside just like Doug can. But I don't think you're going to want two wide receivers on the outside that are 5'10". And despite what I think some people think, I don't think this is you know Doug's last year on the team. He's Yes, he's got a contract. Some people think they're going to trade him or something next year. I don't think so. I think that he's really well situated with this team and is growing with this team and is very versatile. He is a fantastic special teams player, very underappreciated from a fan perspective special teams player. This is a guy that can return kicks and punts should they need him to. He is a fantastic blocker. You know, he, he does a lot on special teams. He's great. He's blocked punts as well. So really is has just a core part of the way this team works. Um, so I think he's around. Getting back to my point, I think that that you're going to have to have a guy like Kevin Norwood who can grow into the, you know, a, 
a better receiver. Yes, Paul Richardson's a guy who's going to be on PUP, or at least it looks like that right now. And maybe he's the guy that comes back next year and takes over for Kirsch. But the guy tore his knee up. You know, we don't know what he's going to be yet. So that would be a pretty big risk, especially when you got a guy like Norwood who's who's got the same amount of club control and is also promising. The other guys at wide receiver, I mean, Kevin Smith was tearing it up before he got hurt. See if he can get back soon. It'd be great to see him in the preseason games. I think he would he would do well there. I think he's really good at special teams. Love his energy. I love his spirit. He's a really, really promising young guy. Kaysen Williams, you know, University of Washington guy. Struggled a little bit the last year. He's played well. I think he looks he looks like an NFL receiver. He can make those plays. He he looks at home in this camp. And I think he also has potential to be a great special teams player. So I think the 98% chance for Casey Williams is practice squad, but there is some scenario where he just balls out through preseason and they cannot let him go. Uh, I think that is possible. Uh, so, so wide receiver is going to be really interesting. Um, I think that, that, that if they go to six receivers, then things change a little bit, but I would assume they're going to go with five, and it's going to be a dang hard cut down. Uh, the other small battle I want to touch on is at the linebacker spot. So, you know, figure the team keeps six or seven linebackers, and I'm going to go ahead and pull up my roster projection, which, if you haven't looked, it is... Uh, up on hawkblogger.com and this was back august 5th so you know six days ago and actually i would change things a little bit but one of the things i have up there that's useful for me to reference even is the average amount of players at each position that they've kept since 2010. if we go down and look at this list for linebackers last year they kept eight and and often what happens is this is the number that they break camp with but then two days later they cut somebody or sign someone else so it changes but their average linebacker number they've kept since 2010 is 6.6. Um, I'm projecting that they're going to keep seven this year. And if you look at the linebackers, let's do the locks again. You've got Bruce Irvin. You've got Bobby Wagner. You've got K.J. Wright. You've got Kevin Pierre-Lewis. And I'd put Brock Coyle on that list. Those guys are locks. They're not going anywhere. Then you've got some questions. You likely have Mike Morgan, who is a solid special teams player. He's still just 27 years old. I don't think he's going to grow as a player much, but he is who he is. He's fine as a backup and a great special teams contributor. That's probably your sixth. And then at seven, you've got a battle. You've got Eric Pinkins, draft pick from last year, a safety in college, drafted to play corner, now playing linebacker, super fast, uh, you know, physical player, great special teams player. Uh, I've been able to watch and confirm what his coach talked about. Really, you know, his college coach talked about him as the best special teams player he's ever had. I can't comment on that. I can just say that Pinkins certainly is willing and able and talented in that way. I think he has the chance to make the team just based off of special teams. The dark horse here is a guy named Tyrell Adams. Tyrell Adams is out of West Georgia. He's a rookie, undrafted free agent. He's six foot two, two hundred and thirty pounds, and keep an eye out for him in the preseason game. Adams is a guy that 
caught my eye a couple times. He the first time was he was covering. I think it was Robert Turbin or no, it was Thomas Rawls on a wheel route deep downfield. Uh, kind of reminded me a little bit of when Bobby Wagner was covering Randall Cobb downfield. Um, just showed a lot of speed. Uh, did a nice job on that play. Followed up almost the next play breaking up another pass, um, breaking on the ball well, um, has shown some, you know, instincts as well. I've seen him sniff out screens and break those up. Just interesting player. I think he's showing some promise. And then in the scrimmage, he just thumped, absolutely thumped Robert Turbin in the hole. And that was what I hadn't seen yet. I didn't know how physical he was and how he could play against the run. So, that's a guy that's interesting, and I think he's going to give Pinkins a little bit of a run. I think Adams has not shown me as much on special teams, and so that could be the, the, the thing that pushes Pinkins above him. And, you know, maybe Adams becomes a practice squad guy. But uh, he's definitely a guy that has my attention, and, and I'll be watching come preseason. While we're on linebackers, we might as well talk about a couple of the other guys. I mean, Bobby Wagner doesn't get much coverage because everyone knows Bobby's good, but he looks damn good. The guy's fast. He's still breaking on balls, breaking up passes. Nobody else can break up. Um, you know, KJ Wright, he's just Mr. Reliable. Uh, there's nothing particularly amazing, uh, about what KJ Wright does on the field, but he really knows the position. He's smart. He's lanky. He can cover and he can tackle. He's a great open field tackler. So, you know, he's, he's who he is. And then Bruce Irvin, people have talked about the weight he's put on. I mean, he is big up top. Like, his arms have definitely gotten bigger. Uh, he still looks every bit as fast, explosive. I've seen him jump over all sorts of crazy things in camp. You know, he's just – he's an elite athlete, and, you know, he's got his eyes on a contract. He's going to come and ball out. So I think he's he's in shape to have a really good season. And the guy that Pete Carroll can't stop talking about is Kevin Pierre-Lewis. You know, this is a guy that was injured late last year. Had shown some flashes in the games he he was in. Super smart, uh, well spoken. If you haven't heard him, you should look up some of his interviews. I think he's going to push for time. He's going to push to get time on the field. I hear that he had the whole day today with the number ones at at the weak side linebacker position where KJ Wright usually plays, and KJ kind of took the day off. You know. I, just going to harp on that again. Before camp started, people were talking about him playing Sam linebacker. He does not play Sam linebacker. He's a will. He is a roaming bullet of a player that can cover ground and can tackle. His biggest issue is, besides durability, is just going to be how does he get off blocks. I've, I've watched Lofa Tatupu work with him on that specifically when they work on these block-shedding drills and how to actually do it. And Bobby is, you know... Man, he is so strong. I, I think I don't give him enough credit for how strong he is watching him versus the other linebackers. You know, strong and explosive. I think Bruce doesn't even do that drill because he's over with the defensive linemen doing pass rush stuff usually at that time. But, um, you know, KJ's good that way. He's got long arms. You can keep people off of him. Uh, but then, you know, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, I've seen him get caught up in the in – the, in the noise, in the blocking, and not be able to get off and disengage and get to the ball. So, you know, that's going to be the thing to watch with him because the way that people are going to run at him is they're going to bring a lot of blockers on sweeps, and he's going to have to comb through all of that 
and get to the ball carrier. So uh, that's that's one that I think he's could be a star of the preseason. He could be a guy that really jumps out. And he's going to be part of what makes this team fun to watch in the second half of preseason games, not just the first quarter or first series. Um, I should talk about running backs just because that's been something a lot of people are interested in. You know, not a lot's changed there, folks. I mean, Marshawn Lynch is Marshawn playing around, horsing around, doing his thing, looks loose, looks happy. Guys are happy to have him. He's, he's participating and doing his thing. Uh, Robert Turbin looks strong. He looks like he looks fast. He looks ready to go. He looks like Robert Turbin. I mean, I, I've never thought Turbin was a guy that was a feature back, but I think he's a, a solid backup player and, and knows his role. And then Kristen Michael, who's the most controversial player on the planet for, for Seattle. You know, he's, he's a guy who looks fantastic when the ball's in his hands. I don't care what anyone says. The guy looks like maybe the most talented runner on the team. Um, they're just trying to figure out how to, you know, how do they get him on the field? Can he do things the right way? Can he hold on to the ball? You know, I think these are all the same questions we had at the beginning. They're still there. And it's a really important preseason for him. Can he show that he deserves to, you know, remain really what could be the heir apparent? You know, I think Marshawn Lynch is very likely to retire after this year. I think Robert Turbin's not going to be re-signed. And Christian Michael is the guy with the best pedigree to take over. I do think that there, because of that, there's a chance they could end up keeping an extra running back um, to give them some more options next year. Uh, this is something Davis Sue has been talking about, and I'm not totally sold, but I can see where they might do it. And the uh, expectation a lot of people have is that it would be a Thomas Rawls out of Central Michigan who would who would take that extra spot. Um, and this is assuming, again, that they would just keep one fullback. I do not believe they're going to keep Derek Coleman and Will Tukuafu. A lot of people are picking that. I think that's wrong. I just don't see that as high enough value. Um, for a position that is really barely used anyway, you're not going to keep two fullbacks. But knowing that you're going to have some issues next year in terms of if Marshawn retires, you may want to keep an extra running back um, since you're going to be down at probably two next year. And then your your third, Christian Michael, will be on the last year of his deal. So, you know, they want to start cultivating some young players. Rod Smith, to me, is the more interesting guy between him and Thomas Rawls. I, I mean, Thomas Rawls looks fine. He looks to me, people aren't going to like to hear this, but he looks to me like the typical preseason training camp running back story. Super solid, can, you know, make people miss, runs hard, will gain yards, look good, um, can do special team stuff. But I don't see him as special, folks. I just don't. I think he's interesting. I got this now on, on record and recorded so people can point it out to me later if I'm wrong. But, you know, Demetrius Bronson was uh, really a camp hero last year and was running really hard and looking great. There's a lot of guys like that. There's just something different when, you you know, a guy like Christian Michael can do things that Thomas Rawls will never be able to do. Doesn't mean that he'll work out, but as far as potential and ceiling, there's just no question which one has the higher ceiling and it would be it would be a failure 
on the side of both the Seahawks and Michael if he didn't make the roster in favor of someone like that. Rod Smith, on the other hand, is intriguing in that he's built differently. He is unique in that way. He's six foot three. You don't see a lot of six foot three running backs. He's been compared to Chris Warren, which I think is fair, although Chris Warren was never a really physical running back. He was a glider. And what I see in Rod Smith, or what I saw from the scrimmage, is this guy attacks. He cuts hard. He is he's a slasher. And when he hits, he hits with intensity and, and intention. So I can't wait to see him in the preseason game. I think he could really show up. So And there's a guy who played at Ohio State. He's played big conference football. He knows how to play against these elite athletes. That's one that, that might stick around. Uh, so we'll, we'll see about that. Only other guy I guess I'll touch on is is Dion Bailey. We talked about him a little bit uh, in their lead up. He's a guy I've been really high on since last year. I, something about him from camp last year really stuck out to me. And he was injured the first part of this camp and sat out. Really disappointed about that. But he's come on like gangbusters. I mean, the guy, he can hit. He can. He's played linebacker in college, so he's got experience that way. He has got ability to cover, and he's always around the ball. He's just one of those guys that kind of has that big play Babs kind of air about him where he's just he's in the right place at the right time. Literally, I mean, last year I saw him situations where you know, two guys would smack into each other and the ball would pop into the air and he'd just be there, you know? like <laughs> wasn't necessarily like he made some amazing play, but he's in the right place at the right time, and there is something to that. That That is a skill. It's hard to define as a skill, but it is a skill. Jerron Johnson was that way as well, not to the same extent that a play like Jordan Babineau was, but Jerron Johnson also, for the, the amount of big plays, fumble recoveries, forced turnovers, blocked punts, you know, that he had for the amount of snaps he got was really high. His ratio of impact plays to, to snaps was really high. And I think Dion Bailey can be a guy like that as well. So he's not your next Cam Chancellor or Earl Thomas or something like that because nobody is, but he's intriguing. He's a guy that maybe his ceiling is as a starter, and that's super valuable. The CX need as many safety options as possible uh, as we go through this. Really, really briefly, again, I will reassure folks, I'm not worried about Cam Chancellor. I'm not spending a single second really thinking about Cam Chancellor. He's going to be back. They'll figure something out. They always do. He doesn't want to miss games. They don't want him to miss games. Maybe they'll move around and guarantee him some money. Maybe they'll cut someone at the end of camp and take the money that was going to be assigned there and figure out a way to shuffle over him. I don't know. I don't really care. I just want him to play. I'm just glad that he's healthy. You know, he could be in camp and getting hurt, you know, knock on wood. You know, at least he's he's keeping – I'm sure he's keeping his body in great shape and he'll be ready. He's a pro. He's a leader on this team. So, you know, that'll all work out. It's, it's, it's just a story because there's nothing – you know, people are looking for stuff to talk about. Speaking of that, um, Andy Benoit – or Benoit, whichever he wants to pronounce it as, wrote an article today uh, that Sports Illustrated tweeted out. And he was basically declaring that the Seahawks are no longer the best defense in the NFL. (laughs) 
and that the team that now is the best defense in the NFL is the St. Louis Rams. And, you know, in some ways I, I hesitate to even give it the time of day because it clearly was kind of a clickbait concept. Um, let's figure out something provocative to get people to read, which it worked for me. But part of the reason it worked is because I, I have a ton of respect for the Rams. Man, I mean, I thought this was a team that was going to be off the charts good last year on defense. They have great run stuffers in the defensive tackle area. They've got great pass rushers all along the defensive line. They've got solid linebackers, and they've got some talented players in the secondary. Lo and behold, they finished 16th in the NFL in points per game allowed. They finished 18th in the NFL in yards per game allowed. They finished 24th in the NFL in yards per play allowed. Uh, you know, that's not good, folks. That's just not good. Uh, you know, I'm looking down this list. They were 31st in the NFL in completion percentage allowed. They allowed 68% of the passes to be completed by their opponents. They were 20th in the NFL in, in picking off the, the quarterback based on the amount of attempts. And for this unbelievably talented pass rush that they have, I mean, Robert Quinn, Chris Long, Aaron Donald, who's a monster, um, you know, Michael Brockers, who's talented. They've got a lot of guys there. They're 12th in the NFL in, in sack percentage. So, come on. I mean, yes, they're good. They're talented. Let's put it that way. They're talented, but they have yet to prove that they're good. They're super tough against the Seahawks. I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop and for them to be just this massively tough team. And maybe this is the year. You know, Nick Fairley added to that crew is great. You know, maybe they'll be healthier. Uh, maybe they'll they'll get more used to the system that Greg Williams is running. And Greg Williams is a pretty respected defensive coordinator. He's got a specific style about him. Uh, but it's just horseshit when you you have a team like the Seahawks ranked number one in the NFL in points allowed three years in a row. Only other team in the NFL to ever do that was the 69-71 Minnesota Vikings. They have been number one in the NFL in yards allowed the last two years. If they do it again for a third year, they'll tie the 84-86 to Chicago Bears as the only other team to do that. This is a historically great Seahawks defense. This is not just the best defense in the NFL. This is the best defense in history, potentially. I don't hesitate in saying that. I've done the math. I've compared these things to era that they played in and the rules that they're playing with and the, what other defenses are doing at the same time. It's not friggin' close. Like people talk about Detroit was, oh, they were so close. Or the Bills, they're like, they're they're just like the Seahawks. You know, if Russell Wilson wasn't on the Seahawks, they'd be just like the Bills. Baloney. Bills were nowhere close to the Seahawks defense. And, and this is just like very superficial. When you dig down to it, defense is not just flashy sacks. And the Bills are fantastic. They were better at sacking the quarterback than the Seahawks last year. They've got a better defensive line for pass rushing than the Seahawks did last year, at least. 
but they were middle of the pack in, in yards allowed on rushing and yards per carry. They were not stout against the run. They were not as good as the Seahawks across the board. So when you look at the Seahawks defense, you're talking about a team that, you know, in the last six games of the year last year, they were allowing six points a game. I mean, <laughs> they went from, you know, sixth or seventh in the NFL and points allowed to number one with a bullet because they have that kind of ceiling. And they did it without Brandon Meebane. They did it without Cassius Marsh. They did it without um, the guys they're adding this year, which is uh, Frank Clark. And, you know, they did it to some extent. They started doing it without Jordan Hill um, toward the end, you know. So it riles me up, honestly, because... Saying a team's the best defense in the NFL does not do it justice. There's always, every year, every single year, there is a best defense in the NFL. There's a best offense in the NFL. There's a best player. This is not just the best defense in the NFL. This is the best defense in history. And if they're not the best defense in history, they are damn close to being the best defense in history. And by the way, I think they're going to be better this year. I think there's lots of reasons why they should be better this year. So if the Rams defense is going to be better than the Seahawks, or any defense for that matter, is going to be better than the Seahawks this year, they better bring it. They better be the best single-season defense ever to play because the Seahawks defense isn't going anywhere. I think that there is reason to have some question at cornerback. It's thin. Richard Sherman's great Kerry Williams is okay. I want to see more. Um, Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor are the best two safeties in football uh, as a tandem. And durability-wise, that could be the question. You know, if they are getting hurt, if they can't stay in the game, then sure, there could be fall off. That's always the potential. But, you know, you can't compare defenses based off of hypothetical injury loss. So when they have their players... You know, that secondary is still badass. I think nickel corner, you're going to see a battle between Will Blackman and Marcus Burley. And I think that I love Will Blackman. I think they kind of would like to have a little more certainty with a veteran there. But Burley's played well, and he's also a really good special teams player. So, you know, he could easily be the nickel. Um, and then they've got some questions behind there. You know, you got Mohamed Cisse that they've they traded for. You've got Douglas McNeil, who's converted to corner and looks a lot like Richard Sherman. He's another wide receiver turned cornerback. He's six foot three. He will not be a guy that they'd plug in and play right away, but I think that he's a guy that they could decide is pretty dang interesting. Um, so they've got some decisions to make there, but it is not the strongest cornerback crew by far. It's probably the weakest cornerback crew since 2010 that the Seahawks have featured. But then you got the linebackers, which this could be one of the best linebacker crews in the NFL uh, from a 4-3 perspective for sure. And I think Bobby Wagner's set for a fantastic year. I've told you before, he could end up being the best player on the Seahawks defense this year. I believe that. You've got K.J. Wright. You've got Bruce Irvin we've already talked about. And then you've got a defensive line who – 
yeah, you've lost Tony McDaniel. We'll see how much that hurts from a run defense perspective. But Ataba Rubin is a guy that I think is well-suited to step in and contribute there. I think that DeAnthony Smith is another guy that could potentially step into run-stuffing situation if they needed him. Um, but the pass rush looks mean. Cassius Marsh on the outside, Cliff Averill on the outside, Bruce Irvin on the outside, Frank Clark sometimes on the outside, um, Frank Clark, Michael Bennett, Jordan Hill on the inside. There is a lot to like about the Seahawks pass rush. And I think they're going to cause mayhem. I think they're going to be great. And they weren't great last year. And you add a great pass rush to this, this defense. And here's the secret, folks. You add a better offense that has the ball longer, that puts up more points, that makes the other team play from behind more often. It makes the defense look really good. I'll never forget watching the end of the 2012 season. That defense was off the charts good. And the offense was really not. <laughs> it was not good. And you remember how they popped and all of a sudden they beat the Bills like, or no, they built, beat the Cardinals 58 nothing, And then they beat the Bills like 50 to six or whatever it was and they beat the 49ers 42 to 13 or, or something to that effect that defense was tiring but it looked better than at any point in the season statistically because the offense was so good at the end of that season so when Pete Carroll talks about things fitting together that's what he means like one thing working well helps the other thing your pass rush helps your secondary your your defensive tackles help your linebackers. Like there's all these things. It's never just you have really good linebackers, so you're good against the run. Like it all has to work in, in unison, in harmony. And it works for units as well. Uh, special teams fits into this as well. Special teams is very likely to put the offense in better position this year than they did last year. And I wrote an article you should check out about how Tyler Lockett all by himself could affect how many points this team scores this year. And it could be two to three points per game just based off him improving the field position. Um, just knowing how what the Seahawks percentages are for when they score based off of where they get the ball on the field. And so, you know, you get those things moving and this defense, even if it's just the same level or even less, a little bit less than that last year, it could end up statistically better because it started so poorly last year and because the offense this year is, is going to be better. I, I, Other than the offensive line, which is a legitimate thing we have to look at, there's a lot of reasons to think this offense could score in the high 20s per game um, and be more reliable on third down, hold the ball longer, score more frequently, in, you know, touchdowns in the red zone. So, you know, Andy... I've, I've respected some of your articles before that one, my friend got to say it is, it is uh, piss poor and, and unfortunate. And uh, I'd hope for better from, from you and from other people that are trying to analyze this stuff. Um, you got to respect what the Seahawks have done and uh, talking about other teams being anywhere near them, especially with having done anything on the field is hugely disrespectful and bordering on ignorant. So 
I'm sure Andy's listening to this podcast. He always does. Right, Andy? So, uh, last thing I think I'll, I'll talk to you guys about before we've got hard knocks coming up here in a little while that I'll go watch my, my kid. But um, we've got the preseason game coming up here on Friday. I can't wait. I'm going. We'll be playing the Broncos. And it's worth a reminder, like, what the what the preseason was like last year, preseason game one. Think back to that. What was the number one storyline coming out of that game? It's okay. I'll give you a second. It was defense. It was related to defense. Yeah, it was those who said and guessed Byron Maxwell would be correct. Byron Maxwell was the big story coming out of that game because Peyton Manning and Demetrius Thomas, Demarius Thomas, were picking on him. And that was the big question going into camp and into this season. That season was, uh-oh, you know, we lost Brandon Browner and Walter Thurmond, and now we just have Richard Sherman on one side. Are they going to pick on Byron Maxwell? Is he good enough? And they completed like nine passes against him. And everyone was flipping out like, oh, no, you know, Legion of Boom is no more. Well, lest I remind everybody that Byron Maxwell signed a $60 million contract in the offseason. So... The moral of this story is do not overreact if Kerry Williams get pick, gets picked on and looks not so great. That's okay. It's okay. It does not mean that he's not going to be a fine contributor come the season. I'm not assuming that's going to happen, but it could. Peyton Manning's very good. Demarius Thomas is very good. Emmanuel Sanders is very good. They've got weapons, and there's not going to be any game planning going on. So you're going to see, most likely, you're going to see the Broncos move the ball down the field, uh, passing. It's going to be hard for the for the pass rush to get home. Peyton Manning is the best in football at getting rid of the ball quickly. It's very hard to get to the quarterback in under two seconds, <laughs> and that's about how long it takes him to, to throw it. They are going to be running a little bit of different offense, I hear. So I'll be curious there. It's it's uh, Kubiak's offense, Gary Kubiak's offense. So there's more play action and and bootlegging and and you know rolling out, which is not the Peyton Manning we know. So that should be interesting to watch. But mainly, I think what's important to follow in that preseason game one and what did stand out from that game as a secondary, like my takeaway from that game is this team is not as deep as it was last year or the year before. And that turned out to be very true. Uh, and the way you know that is, you know, the Seahawks team in 2000, really 11, but 2012, 2013, when it got to the third quarter and the fourth quarter and they were playing their third and fourth string players, they were blowing people out. They were winning a lot because even that level of player was so much higher than the competition's third and fourth string that it just wasn't close. And last year that didn't seem to be the case. It was much closer. Uh, the, the, there did not seem to be a huge talent gap, and that was concerning. So I think that's going to be something to watch. I think that we're going to see there's, there's more – promising young players now than there were last year to see guys like Cassius Marsh and Frank Clark and um, 
Kevin Pierre-Lewis and Tyrell Adams and um, Douglas McNeil potentially and um, you know Mohamed Cisse and and the safeties you know Dion Bailey, Keenan Lambert, Ronald Martin. You know, there's some quality there um, that I think will show up, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that team plays as much in the fourth quarter as I am about how they're going to play in that first quarter. So keep an eye out. Watch. I'll write up the day of, the morning of, some people to watch and keep an eye on. I think I'm also going to be really interested to see how Chris Richard does calling things. Now, granted, it's not going to be game planned, but I want to see, like, is he aggressive? I don't know if they're going to do blitzing, if that's something he's into, but I would love to see any sign that this guy is going to be aggressive because I think his defense is going to be best off if he is aggressive with them. Um, I preferred the way Dan Quinn called defense to the way Gus Bradley did. Uh, a lot more man-to-man, a lot more aggression, a lot less zone. Uh, and Richard being a secondary coach, we'll just be, we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. So lots of fantastic stuff. Always great talking with all of you. And I will try to do at least one podcast a week as much as I can. And as always, uh, go Hawks, take care. And thanks for listening. Some on top of the world. Hey.